Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and I'm the host for today's conversation between Peter, Rama Nadu, and Louise Van Ryn. For the next six episodes, we'll be focusing on the six conversations from Peter Block's work. This was recorded at the outside of the pandemic, and you'll hear that moment in history referenced a few times throughout the episode. For those of you who are new to Peter's work, the six conversations are invitation, possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. These conversations are designed at current small groups seeking to produce transformation in communities. The primary tool within these conversations is powerful questions. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to pause for a second and consider this question. Why was it important to you to listen to this podcast today? In other words, you could have done a million other things with your time, but you chose this. What's important enough to you for you to say yes to being here with us? So I'll ask again, and then offer you a moment to consider your answer. Why was it important for you to listen to this podcast today? Thank you. Rama begins the conversation. We're going to focus on the invitation. How do we get the right people into the room? And how do we get them to have a conversation that is transformative? That's a co-creation of a future distinct from the past. Peter, this is your space to do whatever you do best in terms of giving us a context for these six sessions, but focusing a bit more specifically on the notion of the invitation, which is the focus of this particular session. The six conversations is kind of a portal into a larger conversation. Basically, this work is a series of distinctions. The first distinction is between inviting somebody and mandating them to come. Most change management is a mandate. Invitation means if you come, you come by choice. Invitation means that there's a hurdle. If you come, something will be required of you. That's what the small group does. These are the themes that run throughout all the conversations is how do you engage people with each other, not with you, so that they are confronted with their freedom. The fact that what choice are you making in your life is the only source of action. These Conversations are designed to produce accountability in the world. They're designed to produce agency in the world. They're designed to help people realize that they can create a world that they want to inhabit. And so it's a methodology that says that all transformation is linguistic. The narrative we're living into now is a patriarchal empire, pharaoh-like narrative. I've been involved with raising a whole bunch of kids. I had no idea what was going to happen to them. Luckily, most of them are vertical and out of jail, so I feel like I did a great job. But we have all these habits of parenting in the typical narrative. And so there's both the questions, the conversations, and also the context in which they happen is there for one reason, and that's to be curious. And that's to find out what things mean to people. The most loving question in the world is, why does that matter to you? The bureaucratic question is, what are you going to do about it? That's an unkind question, as if action was all you existed for. 
And so the invitation has all this wrapped up in it. I want to invite you to come to a conversation about whatever you're up to. If you come, you'll be asked to participate in ways that maybe you're not used to. Most meetings you go to, people come and expect to be entertained. Most town meetings inside organizations are, are the bosses standing up with PowerPoint, which means they decided what they were going to say days ago. They probably had a staff person write it for them. I remember being in a workshop once and they said, oh, top management's going to join us. And I thought, that's nice. So the president gets on a video. He says, I'm glad to be with you today. And I'm thinking, you're not here. What's the matter with me? Have I gone crazy? All these are the habits of patriarchy. They're the habits of monarchy. They're the habits of compliance. And the side effect of a high compliance world is it's deeply isolating. People were as lonely before COVID as they are now. It just wasn't visible. The other thing about invitation, it says, I invite you, you come, and there's no barter involved. Most learning technology says, come to this workshop and leave these five things. Well, who am I to say what you're going to leave with? It's like saying, come to this movie. You're going to leave with the following four insights. An invitation makes no promise. It tells you what we're going to pay attention to, because I don't want you coming if you don't want to pay attention to that. But it's absence of barter. It's absence of evaluation. I remember being in India once and everybody was sitting there nine o'clock in the morning. I said, how many of you were told you had to be here? They not only raised their hand, but they did it with enthusiasm. Yeah, I was told to be here. I thought, oh my God, they're enthusiastic about their dependency. I said, we're gonna take a break in eight minutes. If you come back, you come back by choice or don't come back. We won't tell anybody, nobody's watching. And so you're always trying to renegotiate the question of agency. Are you here by choice? Are you on this earth by choice? When we ask the question, why was it important for you to be here today? If I can answer that for today, I've got a clue as to why I was born. And so the question of what's important to me is all wrapped up in the notion of invitation. Also, it goes deeper than that. We have upside down and backwards the notion of cause and effect. Everybody has a history. I once heard the quote that says in Russia, even the past is unpredictable. And I thought, well, that's true about me. Now, I got a story about my past, my mother, brother, sister, uh, uncles, story, 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 gypsy. I always thought I was a wandering Jew, gypsy, gypsy. That's who I am. Nothing to do with who I am. I cannot be explained by my parents. Say, that's not what I came for. I came for some tools. And we even call places a workshop. I, I have a workshop in Connecticut. And I love it. I never make anything. I just love the tools. And it's the same with learning. We go to all these different events and we want more tools. Well, you're not using the one you have. The hardest thing to see an alternative future is to have people just act on what you know. You don't need more tools. And that becomes the theme. So the invitation is a first step towards saying, uh, let's create a future distinct from the past. And uh, to do that means there has to be a narrative shift. I have to be in conversations I'm not used to having with people I'm not used to talking to. And so there's a huge emphasis in the invitation to include strangers in the circle. Not strangers to me necessarily, but strangers to the people coming. And when you break into small groups, number one rule is 
be with somebody that you know the least. Because if you're with somebody that you think you know, you'll never be surprised. And you can't create an alternative future without being surprised. The death of democracy, the death of freedom, the death of agency is like-mindedness. I wanna be with like-minded people. In terms of building community, building organizations that have a future, like-mindedness doesn't help. You want strangers in the room. That's what community is, hospitality is, is the welcoming of strangers. At this point, we invite you to take a breath and consider the words of David White. The poem is called Prayer for an Invitation. As I read the poem, remember your answer to the opening question, why it was important for you to be here with us today. I pray for you, world, to come and find me, to see me and recognize me and beckon me out, to call me even when I lose the ability to call on you who have searched so long for me. I pray to understand the stranger inside me who will emerge in the end to take your gift. I pray for the world to find me in its own wise way, I pray to be wanted and needed by those I have learned to love and those I must learn to love. I pray to be wanted and needed by those I cannot recognize in my own self-imposed aloneness. And I pray to be wanted and needed by those I wish to be wanted by. But I acknowledge the power of your beautiful disguise. And I ask for the patient heart of all things to understand the abiding fear I feel in following your unknown ways. In my fear of receiving, in my fear of taking your hand, in my fear of following your hidden, difficult, and forever beckoning way. As we return to the conversation, Peter addresses the topic of scale. What's your strategy for large-scale change? I said small-scale, done over and over and over again. There's no such thing as large system change. Because if you do, then you get top management together and have them have a vision, write it up, usually with consulting help. Thank you for the business. And then cascades down like a Hawaiian waterfall. We're going to create a deck of our future. And then we're going to give it all our supervisors and they can go through this deck with their people. So all that is a defense against transformation. If you answer this question, you showed up as an actor, you showed up as a co-creator of a future. The workplace is right for us. The community is right for us because it's so broken. We know now the mayor and council cannot give us what we want. Most community meetings are discussions of people not in the room. So part of the invitation is to say, you come and whoever shows up are the right people in the room and open space because most of the time in community work people say where's so-and-so where's the mayor where's the council where's the police chief as if i can't live my life without credentialed people with legitimate power and that's the lie that the invitation exposes is you can live your life i can keep my neighborhood safe police can't i can raise a child school can't i can be healthy medical profession can't make me healthy. If I'm diseased, God bless them, but they don't produce health or safety. And so the invitation is to reclaim what you've outsourced. 
is to reclaim what power you've given to bosses and bosses' bosses. People say, why doesn't top management tell us what's going on? And the reason is they're confused. And so the only people that can get clear is us in a small group talking about what's the world we want to create together. Peter, earlier on you spoke about uh, cause and effect. The shift is from to be cause and not effect. Correct. The second element is that at this time in the world, there's a sense that the leader in the conventional sense of the word expert is lost. They don't know what to do anymore. And so talk a little bit about this window of opportunity for those of us who are in this space to use our presence, power, and position to be part of the change we want to bring into the world. Management, high control, is useful in a predictable world. It's not creative. It's not productive. It doesn't take us anywhere, but it's useful. That predictability is gone. That's the gift, the challenge. It's an opportunity for us to gather people we can be with or to say to boss, could we hold a meeting? Can I facilitate it? And say, how do we together decide how we're going to deal with the huge uncertainty and variability that the world has presented with us now? And some companies have prospered during this. The world is just as unpredictable to them as it is to us. And so it's a moment of co-creation. And I think leaders are softened up by the uncertainty now. So it's a great moment for a collective effort to say, how do we navigate through this? And these questions and this process is a way to do that. There are toxic cultures. And it's amazing. People ask me, oh, my boss is a tyrant. I, I ask them, why are you creating a person like that? No leadership can stand up to a solid, coordinated, supportive set of subordinates. I always feel that the inmates run the prison. Employees decide what kind of culture in the end this is going to be, what work gets done. I believe that the reader creates a book. If I can hold it in my mind, if I can invert the source of future, the source of energy, the source of power, then I can act to create an alternative future. It may not be true. Children create parents. Students create teachers. You all are creating this experience. If I hold that in my mind and then start talking about things like commitment and gifts, possibilities, the world changes. All I'm after is to change the world in the room that I'm at. A large system changed. Like if you can't change the room you're in, give it up. And anytime people talk about revolution, it scares the hell out of me. They don't really want to change anything. They just want to be in charge. That's what revolutions do. They switch tyrants. That's the word transformation captures. Are we an inverting of where I think cause resides? And as soon as you do that, it opens a world, opens a door for you. Don't argue, is it true? I don't know. But as soon as I realize that the reader creates a book, then as the reader, I can go anywhere I want. I don't have to look at the author for the next book. Many people want leaders who will make it better, who will find the answers. Who will, and so that abdication of their own accountability and, and their own responsibility, and then pointing fingers to the leaders when things don't go out. You know, work. It's beautiful. I love it. I love it. I don't want to be responsible. It's an escape from accountability. In the higher control system, the more escape there is. And it's hard. But we're asking of people, you know, there's two lines. 
the front of one line says, if you want safety, stand here. And the other line says, if you want freedom, stand here. Well, the line for yeah. safety goes off, or all the way around the block. And what, the, what COVID does and what the racial unrest does, it steals safety from us. And that's why I think there's an opening for us to say, people, what do you want to create here? How, how do we create a culture of generosity instead of a culture of barter and ambition? And I want to say to people, your children are not going to do better than you did. The American dream no longer exists, and it barely did. So what do you want to do with your life? That's what we're convening people in. The, and in the organization, same thing. But the, the wish for parenting goes deep. Now that lying for freedom is short. There's no way in it. You don't have to wait. You go right to the front of the line. And, and I say, I'd like my freedom. What's going to cost me? You don't get something for nothing. And the answer is anxiety, being scared, looking at your empty calendar. The fear of saying no is the fear of freedom. And if I say no, it may cost me something. Well, yeah, it does cost you something. But at least you are the engine. If you're a boss, what are you looking for? You're looking for people to take real accountability for the well-being of this business. It's risky and possible. That's why these questions are hard. That's why I like them. That's why you don't want to soften them. In training people to use these questions, the hardest thing is they soften them. So the first question, why was it important for you to come into this room today? I'm the mentor, right? You started off. And so they get up in front of the group and they say, well, what do you expect to happen in the session today? And I shoot myself. I don't know what to do. I go to the bathroom. No, I didn't ask you what your expectations are. I'm not interested in your expectation because they're too low. And so we never ask people, what do you expect? I ask them, what's important enough to you that you would walk into this space? And then in that question, I'm producing a moment of accountability. I chose to be here. You taught me that there are these, a good question is three things. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? When you break people into small groups, I never facilitate them. Sometimes I join them out of my own loneliness. I try not to say too much, which for me is a challenge. But the idea is you want questions that are uh, ambiguous. I say, what do you mean crossroads? What do you mean? And I always say, good point. They're ambiguous by design. That way you can put yourself into the question. And they're personal because if we don't fall in love with each other, well, that's a good task for leadership. That's leader as host, not leader as hero. And so make it personal. What's the crossroads you're at at this stage of your life? What are you talking about? And the third one is, should be anxiety provoking. I can't create an alternative future unless I can live with the anxiety of that moment. If I want, the only way to get rid of my anxiety is to choose safety through dependency. And part of what you're teaching leaders is when people say, what's my future going to look like? You say, I, I have the slightest idea. What's going to happen to this unit? I don't know. I'm nervous about it too. And they say, but you're the damn boss. You're the leader. You're letting me down. And then you say to that, well, how do you think I feel about that? I'm not the boss I had in mind either. Fools. Then something gets shifted. Make the questions anxiety provoking, make them ambiguous, and make them personal. And that's by design, because you'll come up with your own questions. Because you cannot defend against those. We come into the room wanting to create something, wanting to make this a good gathering. Two people, five people, a thousand people. I've done this with 5,000 people who came to hear a keynote speaker. 
I wish them luck. That's how I open my keynotes by saying, if you came to be motivated and inspired, God bless you, but you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> you want to design the question, so you shut the instinct to run. I want to ask you a question. If you answer it, you're doomed. All right. What's the promise you're willing to make with no expectation of return? What do I do with that? Now, people can always pass or say, no, there's no promise I'm willing to make with no awesome answer. That's as accountable an answer as saying yes to something I don't need or saying yes on the basis of barter. You're trying to shut down the escape hatches by not colluding with all of our wish to avoid what's real. All intimacy is based on vulnerability. So you're trying to ask questions that increase my vulnerability. And the reason for that is that's the only way I'll discover I'm not alone. Most of the time, my life, my work in the world, I kind of internalize the notion that it's up to me. I'm alone. So part of what this process is about is to tell you three things. You're not alone. And if you get in this next small group and you share with each other the crossroads you're at, at the end of that, you may still be as whacked out as you were when you started, but you know you're not the only one. Because it's easy in this world, if you think about things to feel like you're crazy, I feel it most of the time. What's the matter with me? Why don't I just get it? Get with the program, man. Why are you such a counterdependent fool? Then you discover you're not crazy. You're not alone. Freedom in this context is my capacity to create a future. That's what freedom is. It's not doing my own thing. That's license. Liberty is to step out from under oppression. But freedom means that I have a sense. And I think what these, these conversations evoke is that uh, each of us has a sense that we can bring what we're good at and who we are more powerfully into the world. We don't need to bring it in by helping. Stop helping people because it's, it's colonial. What we're trying to do is create something independent from that. It's not so much fighting against patriarchy. It's creating the alternative wherever we are. And I think that's why the fact that people chose to come, that you and Rama created a delightful, inviting context. It's not a question of letting people break them into groups. It's breaking them into groups with an intention. And the questions are a form of intention. And they're and the more precise we are to not let them off the hook, the more powerful the questions become. And then when people answer them, all you can do is love them for it. What are you, what are you going to do? Well, no, you don't have it right. I, I wish I could do that with people that I knew. I wish I could do that with my family. <laughs> and I would just reinforce the, the fact that the people running our institutions, there's no place to look for change. So people say, what's the head of the Urban League going to do? What's the mayor going to do? What's the... And I said, let them be. God bless them for taking those jobs. Part of the tyranny of the private corporate world is the belief in scale. Take it to scale. As soon as you take something to scale, you commodify something that began out of people's commitment and humanity. And now that I want to do it in 20 cities or 10 cities or four countries, as soon as I do that, I take the life out of it. And now it becomes a program do something powerful in the domain in which you can reach, get your arms around. Everything powerful is always locally generated. And then I find other people. And so we aggregate what's done locally. And that aggregation lets people know there's something larger happening, which is different than replicating. 
because imagination can't be replicated. Commitment can't be replicated. I want to spread it. I just can't be the spreader. Now, we can be connectors. That's where the invitation comes. And you keep saying, who can I invite into the conversation one way or another? I'm part of something being aggregated, but mostly we're going to create something within walking distance. It's a very different way of thinking. And it's not the old cliche, oh, this is bottom up or top down. Both of those choices are ridiculous. It's people who decide they want an alternative future coming together. And I don't care whether they're top, middle, bottom or napping late in the afternoon. You're always looking for people, looking for you as how you engage people in an alternative future, not turning people around, not winning them over. This is this crisis in the church because people aren't engaged with each other. If I go into the church and I sit in a long bench facing forward and a bench is bolted down, well, that's a funny invitation. Am I supposed to be a co-creator of this church or am I waiting for a professional to interpret God? And I, I love the rituals and the buildings, but God can get there on his own. But when we're in these circles, if you're looking for God, it's a good shot. It's a good place to find it, even though it's not named or promoted. Peter Kestenbaum told me, he, I said, Peter, you know, is it wrong to get people to come and then break them into groups? And he says, all marketing is pornography. And I, it's nothing against marketing. It's just that you're always promising things you can't deliver. And so we're Part of the invitation is to put some reality into it. We want to come together, no promise of outcomes. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the conversation in Peter's book, Community, Structure of Belonging, and in the show notes. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and has been produced by the amazing Joey Taylor. And music is from Jeff Gorman.